This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not a hundred percent, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast's October extravaganza, where you're going to get extra podcasts that are very Halloween October themed for your viewing or listening pleasure. So this particular podcast will be about a very real mother, Susan Smith. Susan Lee Vaughn was born on September 26, 1971 in Union, South Carolina. So let's get into some history for that time. In the United States, the passing of Amendment 26 brought the voting age down to 18. After years of construction, Florida's Disney World theme park opened. NASA's Apollo 14 mission to the moon was launched in January and was the third successful manned mission to the moon. Not to be outdone, of course, the Soviet Union launched the first space station, Salyut 1, into low Earth orbit that April. In November, Mariner 9 had been launched and was successful in its mission to become the first artificial satellite to orbit Mars mapping the surface of Mars, gathering atmospheric data, and taking highly detailed images of the surface. Also this year, China was admitted into the United Nations. Earthquakes hit Peru and the San Fernando Valley. Mount Etna erupted in Italy. There were prison riots in Attica, a tsunami hit India, and Australia, as well as New Zealand, began to pull out of the Vietnam War. Problems in Northern Ireland continued as rioting increased as part of the IRA campaign to end British government rule. And then, Charles Manson and three of his followers received the death penalty. Jim Morrison of the Doors was found dead in his bathtub in Paris, France as well. So this was the atmosphere that Susan was born into. Her father's name was Harry Ray Vaughn and her mother's was Linda Sue Harrison. Harry was born in March of 1940 in Union, South Carolina. His family from way back had always lived in South Carolina. Her mother Linda was born in 1943. Now, when 20-year-old Harry met 17-year-old Linda, she was already pregnant with another man's baby. They married in 1960 before Linda gave birth to her son, who she named Michael. 
then together they had a son they named Scotty and then Susan. Their marriage was troubled to say the least and Harry would become enraged and threaten to kill Linda and then himself. He was an alcoholic and had convinced himself that Linda was not being faithful. Susan recalls that she and Scotty were absolutely terrified at how their parents treated each other. It was said that Michael, the oldest child, attempted to kill himself by hanging before Susan had even entered preschool. Michael would have been in his very early teens. He was then sent to Duke University Residential Treatment Center, though he spent time at other treatment centers as well. Now, observers of Susan when she was little said that she seemed like a very sad child and that she would sometimes just stare off into space, which sounds a bit like dissociation. However, she did love her father dearly and spent as much time with him as she could. Then in 1977, after 17 years of marriage, Linda asked for a divorce. According to sources, Harry became deeply depressed and his drinking got worse. So two weeks after the divorce was finalized, Linda married a man named Beverly Russell. Bev was supposedly a quote, well-to-do appliance store owner in downtown Union. Five weeks after the divorce was finalized, Harry broke a window and gained entry into Linda's house. They got into a heated argument and Linda called the police. As they arrived, they witnessed Harry actually striking Linda. Harry then indicated that he was afraid he was going to hurt someone and asked one of the officers that showed up to take him to jail. Whether or not he was arrested that night, he reportedly placed a gun between his legs, he aimed it at his stomach, and he fired it. It did not kill him immediately. He was able to call 911 for help and was rushed to the hospital where he underwent emergency surgery, but they could not save his life. Susan was six years old and devastated. Now, her new stepdad had been married before and apparently had a few daughters. He was on the South Carolina State Republican Committee and also a member of the advisory board of the Christian Coalition. After the marriage, Linda took the children and moved from their small home into his much larger house in a rather exclusive suburb. At just 13 years old, Susan attempted suicide by taking a whole bottle of aspirin. But you know, at school, Susan was a great student. She made great grades. She was very popular and seemed quite outgoing. As she entered high school, she became a cheerleader and all seemed to be well. Except it wasn't. When she was 16 years old, her stepfather, Bev, began molesting her. She eventually went to her high school counselor and reported what he was doing to her. Now, being a mandated reporter, the counselor contacted the Department of Social Services and Bev moved out of the home, temporarily. As it turns out, nothing of substance came from her reporting it, and other than a handful of family counseling sessions, Bev moved right back into the home. It is reported that her family actually chastised her for publicly admitting what he had done to her. 
Susan later said that her mother cared more about the public embarrassment than what her husband had done to her own daughter. And then of course, predictably, the molestation continued. And then during Susan's senior year, she would begin to spiral. While she was voted most outgoing at school, at home she again reported that her stepfather was sexually abusing her and again the Department of Social Services were called, but Susan would not press charges and everything was sealed up so that the family wouldn't face any public embarrassment again. Also during her senior year, she was being intimate with three men. One was a married older man who worked at the Winn-Dixie grocery store she worked at. One was a younger employee at that same store and then her stepfather, Bev. But she worked hard at the store and worked her way up from being a cashier to the bookkeeper. Now, after the affair she was having with the married man at the store, that resulted in a pregnancy and she did get an abortion. The man immediately dumped her. She then tried committing suicide yet again by taking an overdose of aspirin and was treated for an emotional disorder, but I couldn't find what the actual label was. And that murder fam was Susan's childhood. So where should we begin? Though I am not a PhD, it seems pretty clear that her father suffered from a mental illness. He was an alcoholic and showed very clear signs of paranoia, but also showed signs of having depression. Her parents fought constantly right in front of her. Research supports that depression, anxiety, and aggression can be the behaviors displayed from a child who experiences their parents fighting regularly. Arguing in front of a child can be incredibly damaging to their mental health because it fosters a sense of instability and insecurity. This constant stress of having to experience the arguing takes a toll on that child's physical and psychological well-being and it does interfere with normal and healthy development. A 2013 study published in Child Development found that the stress associated with living in a high-conflict home may impair a child's cognitive performance. These kids had more difficulty regulating their attention and emotions. There is also an alarming increase in these kids growing up to treat others with hostility. They may also struggle to maintain healthy relationships when they are older if they've grown accustomed to family discord and may struggle to identify who they can really trust in life. There is also a marked increase in cases of eating disorders, sleep problems, headaches, stomach aches, and substance abuse. Now I'm going to introduce you to what is known as the quote Cinderella effect. In evolutionary psychology, this is the phenomenon where higher incidences of different forms of child abuse and maltreatment by step-parents than their own biological children. It is, of course, named after the fairy tale. It is a byproduct of a biological bias towards a person's own blood relative against one who is not. Studies show that 17% of all stepdaughters are sexually abused by their stepfathers. In comparable figures, only 2% were sexually abused by their biological fathers. 
The abuse from the stepfather was also shown to be much more severe than the abuse experienced from the biological father. But stepsons and their stepmothers are not immune, of course. The long-term effects of sexual abuse are again higher levels of depression, guilt, shame, self-blaming, eating disorders, sleep disturbances, anxiety, dissociative patterns, repression, denial, sexual issues, and relationship problems. Survivors most often have a feeling of worthlessness, have suicidal thoughts, and if the abuse comes from an esteemed and trusted adult, children find it incredibly hard to view their abuser in a negative light. Survivors also usually blame themselves and internalize all of the negative feelings into themselves. They may experience difficulty in establishing interpersonal relationships. They could develop a fear of intimacy, difficulties with trust, passive behaviors, and in some cases they become highly sexually active or have sexual dysfunction. Then we backtrack to her father's suicide. When a parent kills themselves, it is shocking and very disturbing to their child or children. Feelings of shame, anger, confusion, guilt, horror, all overwhelming feelings for that child. Researchers at John Hopkins Children's Center found that children who are under 18 when their parents commit suicide are three times as likely as children with living parents to later commit suicide themselves. We know Susan tried to kill herself twice. I think that that really basically kind of covers it. Susan, in my humble opinion, and based on her childhood, was destined to, well, at the very least, have a very rough adulthood. Without proper counseling for her father's suicide, her mother's very passive action toward the sexual abuse she reported about her stepfather and being shamed into silence, it would have been difficult to come out of a childhood like that, the picture of perfect mental health. But let's continue. So after high school, Susan continued working in that grocery store and began dating another employee by the name of David Smith. David had been engaged to another woman, but he broke it off to begin dating Susan. They married a year later, when Susan was 20 and David was 21. David was described as clean-cut, good-natured, he was a good worker, even though some of Susan's friends said that he was, you know, unsophisticated. The marriage had been quick and quiet in March of 1991 because she gave birth to their first son, Michael, only seven months later. Oh, and side note, Susan and her stepfather, Bev, were now both willingly and continuing to sleep with each other. But the new parents had moved into David's great-grandmother's house. Around that same time, David lost a brother to Crohn's disease. It would seem that David and Susan would be a good match as they comforted each other. And yet, Susan was already very unhappy. She complained about the small house that David was fixing up for them and would leave to go stay at her mother and stepfather's house for longer and longer times. Then she would make up with David and she would go back. This back and forth became so frequent that many didn't know whether or not the couple was really together or not. 
David later stated that he felt like Susan's mother was overbearing and intrusive and with Susan being pretty materialistic, she would go running to her mother wanting money. Linda would also be quite intrusive when it came to how they took care of their small son, Michael. When Michael was just five months old, the couple separated and Susan began seeing another man she worked with. Over the next seven months, she and David would be on again, off again, and on top of her dating this other male coworker. Then in November of 1992, Susan told David she was pregnant again and the two decided to try to make their marriage work. They borrowed money from Susan's mother for a down payment on their own house, thinking that this might help solve some of their problems. Needless to say, it did not. During her second pregnancy, it is said that Susan complained terribly about being pregnant and became even more distant from her husband. Just before Susan gave birth to their second son, David had been feeling lonely and isolated and unfortunately had an affair with one of his co-workers. In August of 1993, their second son, Alexander, was born and the couple were again very briefly back together. And then in just three weeks, they decided their marriage was over. But as far as co-parenting went, the couple really did pretty good. Both were described as loving and attentive to their young boys. But understandably, Susan didn't want to go to work every day and have to look at David, so she took a job as a secretary in a large textile mill, who was also the largest employer of the area. Being a diligent worker, she was promoted to the executive secretary position for the president and CEO of the company, J. Carey Findlay. This was her doorway into a more prestigious position in society, and she began dating the owner's son, Tom. Now, Tom Findlay was Union's most eligible bachelor. And then she again tried to reconcile with David while still seeing Tom on the side. She finally asked David for a divorce and began to plan her future with Tom. However, and that's a big however, Tom was in the process of trying to figure out how to kind of break things off from Susan. In October of 1994, just days before her divorce would be final, Tom wrote her a letter. I cut out the parts that don't really pertain, but here is what he wrote. Quote, Dear Susan, I hope you don't mind, but I think clearer when I am typing, so this letter is being written on my computer. This is a difficult letter for me to write because I know how much you think of me, and I want you to know that I am flattered that you have such a high opinion of me. Susan, I value our friendship very much. You are one of the few people on this earth that I feel I can tell anything. You are intelligent, beautiful, sensitive, understanding, and possess many other wonderful qualities that I and many other men appreciate. You will, without a doubt, make some lucky man a great wife, but unfortunately it will not be me. Even though you think we have much in common, we are vastly different. We have been raised in two totally different environments and therefore think totally different. 
That's not to say that I was raised better than you or vice versa. It just means that we come from two different backgrounds. Susan, I could really fall for you. You have so many endearing qualities about you and I think that you are a terrific person. But like I have told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I am speaking about your children. I'm sure that your kids are good kids, but it really wouldn't matter how good they may be. The fact is, I just don't want children. These feelings may change one day, but I doubt it. With all the crazy, mixed up things that take place in this world today, I just don't have the desire to bring another life into it. And I don't want to be responsible for anyone else's children either. But I am very thankful that there are people like you who are not so selfish as I am and don't mind bearing the responsibility of children. If everyone thought the way I do, our species would eventually become extinct. But our differences go far beyond the children issue. We are just two totally different people and eventually those differences would cause us to break up. Because I know myself so well, I am sure of this. But don't be discouraged, there is someone out there for you. In fact, it's probably someone that you may not know at this time or that you may know but would never expect. Either way, before you settle down with anyone again, there is something I need you to do. Susan, because you got pregnant and married at such an early age, you missed out on much of your youth. I mean, one minute you were a kid and the next minute you were having kids. Because I come from a place where everyone had the desire and the money to go to college, having the responsibility of children at such a young age is beyond my comprehension. Anyhow, my advice to you is to wait and be very choosy about your next relationship. I can see this may be a bit difficult for you because you are a bit boy crazy, but as the proverb says, quote, good things come to those who wait, unquote. I am not saying you shouldn't go out and have a good time. In fact, I think you should do just that have a good time and capture some of that youth that you missed out on. But just don't get seriously involved with anyone until you have done the things in life that you want to first. Then the rest will fall into place. Susan, I'm not mad at you about what happened this weekend. Actually, I'm very thankful. As I told you, I was starting to let my heart warm up to the idea of us going out as more than just friends. But seeing you kiss another man put things back into perspective. I can't let myself get close to you. We will always be friends, but our relationship will never go beyond that of friendship. And as for your relationship with B. Brown, of course you have to make your own decisions in life, but remember, you have to live with the consequences also. Everyone is held accountable for their actions, and I would hate for people to perceive you as an unreputable person. If you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you will have to act like a nice girl. And you know, nice girls don't sleep with married men. Besides, I want you to feel good about yourself, and I am afraid that if you sleep with B. Brown or any other married man for that matter, you will lose your self-respect. I know I did when we were messing around earlier this year. So please, think about your actions before you do anything you will regret. I care for you, 
but I also care for Susan Brown and I would hate to see anyone get hurt. Susan may say she wouldn't care, then copy unintelligible. Husband had an affair, but you and I know that is not true. Again, you will always have my friendship, and your friendship is one that I will always look upon with sincere affection. Tom, P.S. It's late, so please don't count off for spelling or grammar. Unquote. So it even appears that Tom caught Susan kissing another man, a married man, I might add. So at this point, she was still technically married, seeing Tom was observed kissing another man and was also willingly having an affair with her stepfather. I know, it's a lot to keep up with. Oh, and some sources say she was also sleeping with her boss, which if you remember is Tom's father. So Susan was absolutely devastated after reading this letter. She had been living quite the vivid delusional dream inside of her mind. She told Tom about her ongoing affair with Bev to try to garner his sympathy, which of course didn't work. She then told him she was sleeping with his father, though she later denied it, and again, it had the opposite effect. He let her know that under no certain terms would they ever be together. About a week after receiving the letter and after her attempts to win Tom back and seeing it just was not going to happen, She spent the day of October 25th, 1994, obsessing over the situation. She left work early, saying she wasn't feeling well. She then picked up her now three-year-old son, Michael, and 14-month-old son, Alex, from daycare. Then she met up with a friend in a parking lot and chatted for a bit, where she brought it up how Tom wasn't acting how she had expected him to after she told him that she had slept with his father. She then asked this friend to watch her children while she went to Tom's office to try to persuade him to change his mind. He got her out of his office quickly. She told her friend who was waiting with her kids outside that, quote, I may just end it, unquote. Then Susan went home. She then called a friend that she knew had had dinner with Tom and some other friends to ask if Tom had said anything about her, and that friend said no. He didn't mention you. At about 8 p.m., Susan took her two young sons, put them in their car seats, and began driving around. Okay, folks, disclaimer, disclaimer. Susan then drove to John D. Long Lake, which was on the way to nowhere. She drove down the boat ramp and stopped. According to her later testimony, she let the car roll forward, then stopped it again. Then she got out of the car and let her car, with her two small sons inside, roll into the water. She watched as her car drifted out into the water and sank. She then ran to a nearby house, beat on the door, then told the homeowners that a black man had taken her car and her two small children. The homeowners called the police. It was now 9 p.m. Of course, it didn't take long for the authorities to begin to believe that she was lying. The description she gave of the man that had supposedly carjacked her, taking her kids, and so on was just too generic. It was too vague. She had said that she stopped at a red light in town when the man who poked a gun into her side had jumped in the car. 
The problem with this was at that particular stoplight she said she was at does not turn red unless another car is waiting at the intersection. She had stated there were no witnesses. Susan put on a rather impressive display for the media crying but producing no tears, referring to her sons in the past tense. Of course, David was completely beside himself and held the mother of his children to try to comfort her. I remember seeing this on the news. This man was beside himself. For nine days, she carried on like this. So the lead investigator decided to have both David and Susan take a polygraph test. David passed, of course, but Susan did not. While her results were inconclusive, quote unquote, she was asked about the discrepancies in her stories. Even reporters began to ask her stories as they began to see through the cracks. She seemed concerned about how she looked in front of the cameras and even asked people where Tom Findlay was. She and Tom actually spoke a couple of times during all of this, but she didn't want to hear words of comfort from him. She wanted to talk about their relationship. She and David were even interviewed by CBS This Morning, which for those who aren't from the United States, it's just a very popular morning news show. Finally, she was taken in for another interrogation and she finally caved. She told the authorities what had actually happened. She said she was ashamed of what she had done. Susan told them where they could find the car, which was actually only about 20 feet further out than where they had already searched. As they pulled the car out of the water, they could see one tiny hand against the glass of the window. She announced that on the day she did this, that she had wanted to kill herself and her children. Instead, she stepped out of the car and let her boys drown. She said she didn't want her boys to have to grow up without a mother. During the trial, the prosecution, who was going for the death penalty, wanted to make her look as bad as possible, so they brought in evidence of much of the promiscuity Susan had displayed and the letter that Tom had written to her to try to show that she really had just wanted to get rid of her children, who were merely in the way. The defense used the same evidence to show that she had had a horrible childhood and the sexual abuse and so on. Ultimately, she was sentenced to life in prison. The defense psychiatrist diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder and major depression. And apparently substance abuse was also brought up during the trial. So let's look at that. Dependent personality disorder kind of displays itself as a long-standing need for a person to be cared for. They have an extreme fear of abandonment. They become very upset if they are separated from the people they attach themselves to. They are often clingy, needy, seem unable to make decisions without input from others, and they avoid personal responsibility. They cannot take criticism, they lack self-confidence, are quite tolerant of abuse from others, and are quick to avoid conflict. Their actions seem very childlike and just plainly can't seem to self-soothe. 
Major depression is a mental health disorder where the person experiences persistent depressed moods and loss of interest in activities, which causes significant impairment in daily life. Symptoms include anxiety, apathy, guilt, hopelessness, loss of interest or pleasure in activities that they once enjoyed, mood swings, sadness, agitation, excessive crying, irritability, social isolation, lack of concentration. Most of us are quite familiar with depression. So do these really match up with Susan? Yeah. Susan drank a lot. And I didn't find anywhere where she was labeled as a heavy drinker or an alcoholic, but it was said that she did drink a lot pretty regularly. This is not a good combination when someone is suffering from major depressive disorder. But some of her behaviors do line up with that. What I have a bit of an issue with is the dependent personality disorder. That, under most all circumstances with that disorder, does not lead to violence and murder. That is the key. Our, jokingly, Lord and Savior, Dr. Todd Grande, spoke about Susan Smith on his YouTube channel, and I'll link his video below. And though he won't officially diagnose her for obvious and responsible reasons, he thought Susan could align more with having vulnerable narcissism or borderline personality disorder. So what has she been up to lately? Well, she has seduced a couple of guards and gotten them fired. She has been disciplined multiple times for use of narcotics, mutilating herself though not severely, unauthorized use of an inmate's PIN number. Interviewers say she is still very charming and very charismatic. Thanks for listening.